0: guys and gals and welcome back to the Endurance House podcast. We are on episode number 26 and we have a beast of an episode this week. Um, We've got the Cocodona 250 um, and Wes Plate is our man this week. Um, Actually on the same team as Wes through Ultraspire and he shared his report with our team and I immediately wanted to see if he was interested in sharing because I don't know about anyone else who might be listening to this podcast, but I was completely locked into the live stream footage um, that Air Vipa Running did for the Cocodona 250. It was just kind of actually mind-blowing and next level and incredible, so um, getting to hear someone's First-hand story of that race, um, after being a huge nerd and and following along for you know three three or four days, um, is super exciting. So, um, Wes does a great job of kind of digging in, and and I th- I think you get a feel for, and this is something that I think may be different in the two hundred or two hundred plus races is how you kind of really latch on to different people and, and connect and keep up and run with those people or take extended periods of time with them. Um, but anyway, not to give away too much. Um, Wes does a great job here. I, it really makes me, and I'm probably gonna sound crazy, but super interested in these longer efforts at some point. I don't know about now, but, um, i I really feel something that I love about ultra running, especially ultra running when it comes to being in the trails and and exploring is you know these 200 mile or 250 mile races. there's no better way to see a landscape than doing it on foot um, and a point to point 250 mile race in Arizona especially after running black Canyon and being out in that area just sounds absolutely incredible. I mean, it sounds miserable as well, but also incredible. So, um, without further ado, we're going to let Wes take this away after a little shout out to our sponsor, Buffalo Bluffs hemp. Um, you guys have heard me talk about them for 25 episodes now. I'm, absolutely still in love with the product they're doing an amazing job um please give them some love and check out what they're doing if you're running 250 miles you should probably be carrying buffalo bluffs salve (laughs) on your on your being during the race to help with the soreness that's going on there so um The Endurance House is our code. It is 20% off your first order. So give them some love. Try out some products. Shoot them a message if you have a question. Kurt's amazing. He will steer you in the right direction for what you need. So um, please give them some love. And now that we got that out of the way, let's let Wes take it from here.
1: Hi, my name is Wes Plate and this is my race report for the Cocodona 250 which I ran from May 3rd until May 7th, 2021. Cocodona 250 was my second run in the 200 plus mile distance. My previous effort was Moab 240 in October 2019. The race started out on the fun and very runnable Black Canyon Trail I was in the third wave of runners starting at 5.20am. I was worried about going out too fast, but the group I was in had a really nice conversational pace. In front of me were brothers Doug and Drew Watson, and immediately behind me were Bill Dittman and Jeff Rifkin. We all ran well and didn't push too hard. I really enjoyed the conversations with these other runners, and we took advantage of the cooler temps to make progress. This section had some really pretty single-track trails that moved between the saguaro cactus and beautiful rocks, and the views as we climbed were our first reward as the sun rose. At the first aid station, the volunteers were reminding all of us to fill up with water. We were required to carry at least three liters, but I decided to fill up with six liters. I used an Ultraspire Epic XT pack at the beginning of the race because it had a lot of storage and would easily accommodate many full water bladders. The race was suggesting runners carry at least 3 liters, and I had heard Jamil Khoury say he'd be carrying 4 liters, and I thought that if Jameel, who is from here and is used to the heat, is carrying 4 liters, I'd better bring more. So in addition to my four milliliter chest bottles, I also brought along two two-liter bladders to fill. I figured better to have too much than not enough. One downside was it took me a long time to fill the bladders and bottles to get myself ready to go. I also grabbed some sort of homemade turkey sandwich thing from the aid station to eat on the way out. I also left with ice in my ice bandana. While it wasn't very hot yet, I knew it would be very soon. My pack was very heavy leaving with all of that water, but I hustled a little bit to try to catch up with the runners from my wave that I had been with before the aid station, and after a little while I caught up with Doug and Drew. The trail was more like an old jeep road, but even still, it was so rugged. Big rocks and steep climbs. It climbed up one mountainside, then descended the other, only to climb again to the next ridge. The climbs were strong, and the descents were more runnable. I'm a fairly strong climber, and as I pressed up the steep climbs, I left Drew and Doug. The trail seemed to have been recut by a bulldozer very recently, and it was easy to follow. There were mostly nowhere else to go. I stopped to refill my chest bottles with one of my two-liter bladders, and Andrew Kleinke said hi and introduced himself as he passed. I quickly caught up with him after my bottles were filled, and we traveled together for a while. I cannot say enough about the climbs. They were long, exhausting, and a little demoralizing. I would see the top above us and I would say, we're going up there? Eventually, we descended into the area of Milk Ranch at mile 26, an area shown in one of Jamil's videos. As predicted, there was no water to filter from, as the stream shown in Jamil's April video had gone dry. Runners were already starting to suffer in the heat. One runner was sitting in the shade in the doorway of the little house. I later learned that more than one runner had used the little house as a refuge from the sun and heat. As we climbed up, I chatted with Jonathan Alsip, a young runner doing his first 200. I started seeing runners paused on the side of the trail, struggling with low water supplies. I passed Pam Reed as she was giving water to a shirtless runner that I later heard people refer to as Dave from Florida, I saw my friend Ben Light resting in the shade, so I stopped to refill my chest bottles with my second two liter bladder. Ben was running low with about six miles left to the next aid station, so I shared about 500 milliliters of water with him. Kerry Ward caught up with us, and Ben and I followed him up the trail. While we had been climbing and descending and climbing all day, soon the really big climb started. My pace slowed in the heat, and the climb steepened, causing more slowing. But still, I passed more runners, including Corey Woltering. Seeing world-class runners on the same course as me was fun, but I didn't enjoy seeing them struggle. I passed another runner who said he'd been out of water for five miles, and we still had three miles to go until Lane Mountain. I was sad that I didn't have water to share with him. Everyone was suffering in this section. Lots of runners were taking breaks in the cover they could find in the upper stretches of the trail. And about a mile before the Lane Mountain aid station, I came across a volunteer at an impromptu water stop. He was helping people who were out of water make it to the next aid station. After leaving Lane Mountain, it was a relatively short downhill run on a dirt road into Crown King. I had a good pace, trying to let the hill do the work while not getting too excited and overdoing it. I was really excited to see crew and take a break. Crown King is a visually stunning location, and the saloon makes you feel like you're in the Old West. The aid station food options were peanut butter and jelly or bean roll ups. I was surprised. What? No burgers or quesadillas? I asked my crew to go back and ask again, but they came back and said that that's all there was. I was disappointed. I got cleaned up and refreshed, ready for the night ahead. I left Crown King on a dirt road that soon began climbing. A neighbor shouted, "'Hey, where are you from?' So I stopped and talked with him for a minute. I loved that he was so interested in us and what we were doing. On the climb up, I passed a couple of runners, including the famous Sean Nakamura. It was gorgeous here. The views were made extra beautiful by the late afternoon light of the soon-to-be-setting sun. We began a descent, and I saw Bill Dittman again. He was running with Nicole Ederle. I passed them and met Todd Scott from Michigan. We had a great chat and ran down the smooth dirt road. Suddenly, Sean Nakamura flew by at an incredible pace. Wow, nice downhill work. Scott Ramey from Omaha joined us as we continued down. The downhill seemed to go forever, making for effortless running as we chatted away. Eventually, the sun went down and darkness took over. By this point, we were on the Senator Highway, which we'd heard a lot about. It was flattish and smooth. Progress to the next aid station was steady. It was so nice to have the long break from climbing after the traumatic second section. The aid station didn't have much to eat, but everyone was having ramen, so I joined the party and had a cup too. After a brief refresh at the roadside battle Flat aid station, I left with Todd Scott. I saw a runner off to the side of the road having a sleep. I was happy to see that runner embrace the trail nap, but it was too early for me to be thinking about sleep. After about two miles, we turned off the Senator Highway for single track. I was pushing to go a little faster, so Todd bid me a see you later, and I took off. I passed Sean Nakamura again, as well as another runner, and this section began in earnest. At the Battleflat aid station, we had talked about the climbing of this next section, and there was indeed much climbing, some of it very steep. Since it was dark, I found this section extremely confusing. I saw lights high in the distance. Were they runners? Were they close? We ran along fence lines, and it was windy, so I assumed we were exposed, but I felt fairly sensory-deprived. I saw runners ahead and to the right, but it seemed like my trail went to the left. I was so confused, but I just stayed on trail. We passed through many gates, and all the while we climbed. Some descents, some reprieves, but always then another climb. We left single track and returned to the dirt road. Surely we were approaching the camp for the next aid station, but it took forever to get there and I kept consulting my Gaia GPS app to confirm I hadn't missed something. Temperatures were pleasant the whole time. It was windy, but I was comfortable in my outfit of headband, t-shirt, arm sleeves, and shorts. Several runners were already around the fire at Camp Kippa, including Carrie Ward who had passed me a few miles back, but I don't remember who else was there. I started with a break on a bucket toilet situated behind some RV trailers. It was on a slope, and as I sat on the seat, I was terrified I would fall backwards. Food options were again limited, so I asked for ramen, but the broth was just lukewarm and the noodles were crunchy, so I didn't finish it. Soon it was time to go, and Jeff Lifkin, who had ran the first section with me, left right behind me. This section started on gravel roads, leaving the camp and through mountain neighborhoods, and then proceeded mostly on the Senator Highway. Course marking was sparse through here, and I kept my phone out for a long time to verify the turns. I ran for a bit with Jody Seminelle. Jody's friend Scott had told me earlier about her stumble at mile 5 that gave her a large cut on her leg, so she updated me on how she was doing. Every aid station, she had the medics check her bandages, and it was so inspirational to see a runner push through a challenge like that. I was alone again by the time the course left the Senator Highway. There, we joined a really nice, flowy, and winding single track trail that brought us into Camp Wamatochik. At Camp Wamatochik, I was reunited with crew for the first time since Crown King. It was cooling down a little more, so I bundled up in blankets as I sat with crew and we prepared for the next nine mile section. Out of Camp Wamatochik, we left on dirt single track and then quickly weaved through some mountain neighborhoods where I joined Van Patterson from Phoenix. We left the neighborhood onto a dirt road that descended a short while. I found this section of movement difficult. I could only run for short bursts, even on downhill. There was a lot of walking and I was a little tired. The sky was getting lighter. I love seeing the sunrise during these long runs. It really gives a boost to both the mind and the body. Eventually, the course joined some gorgeous winding single track, It was just as the sun was spilling through the trees, so it was extra beautiful. The trails eventually dumped us into civilization, and the course wound through neighborhoods on paved streets. The little bits of Prescott we ran through were cute, a happy welcome as the course downhilled its way toward Whiskey Row. The area around the aid station was relatively quiet as I arrived. Following race instructions, I crossed at crosswalks and waited for walk signals. Then I ran up to the aid station. I saw just ahead that Jamil Khoury and his pacer Kevin were just leaving. I checked into the aid station to see what was to eat. Surely some breakfast burritos or something substantial? No. I sensed the troubling trend that the aid station food was not what runners were expecting. I crossed the street to where my crew was set up and recovered for a bit. I spent a bit of time chilling out. It was so nice to take a break. I finally left at 8.35 a.m. and was surprised by how much it had already warmed up. We were going to do a half marathon through Prescott and Prescott Valley, passing Watson Lake and crossing through the Granite Dells. I caught up to Jeff Rifkin and we walked for a bit. He was planning to walk a lot today because of the heat. I was already thinking it was a lot warmer than I expected. I ran ahead, but soon I was lost in the easy in-town running as I stopped paying attention to course markers and I missed a turn. Back on course, I caught up with Bill Dittman, who was also walking to conserve in the heat. I knew he was smart to do this, but I wanted to move a little faster, so I jogged on. I caught up with Scott and Jody, who were also running, and then we went together a couple miles towards the lake. Bill caught up and then passed us, and soon I joined another runner from Washington. Justin Lang and I picked our way through the granite rocks. It was slow going in this section, but it was fun and a visual feast, a beautiful place to explore. Eventually, I left the park and joined Bill for a death march along an old railbed now trail to bring us to the Iron King aid station. It was exposed and so hot, and I had run out of water. My crew had promised McDonald's for me at the aid station, and I couldn't wait to get there and drink all the things. I left Iron King alone on a trail that seemed to disappear into nothing. The trail went across a flat field, and if it weren't for the flags, I couldn't see where it was taking me. Eventually, it took me to a gate, and the course left the field for a sidewalk. Then this section followed a road to the edge of town, where tow yards and FedEx freight buildings hit out. This is one of the more soulless parts of the course. Then, through a gate onto the Fane Ranch property, flat and windy and dry, we trudged across ranchlands for a long, long time. There was a runner ahead of me, and I finally caught up with him when the course crossed under a highway. It was Justin Lang from Spokane. Justin and I discussed where we were supposed to go. I showed him on the map that the course went through the culvert in front of us to get under the highway, but Justin saw footprints going towards an underpass a ways to the north, so he went to try it. As the course crossed the range, we hit the 100-mile point of the course, marked by a sign. And this part of the course wasn't very interesting, there's no disputing that. But how else do we get across the Mingus Mountain from Prescott? It didn't bother me, so I just kept on moving. After leaving Fane Ranch, we had a little more ranch land to traverse, but before long we were starting to climb a gentle slope, and after crossing a gate, the course moved onto a gravel road. Next, I turned off the road onto a trail that began the actual climb up to Mingus Mountain. Apparently, this trail is used as a part of the annual man-versus-horse race, and while I was moving strong, even the slowest equine challenger would have surely bested me. The climb became more and more beautiful the higher we went and the higher we went, the steeper it got. This climb might have been a thing of concern if I hadn't been brutalized by the day one climbs in section two and the night one climbs in section four, but I was used to big climbs now, and this was less difficult and more beautiful than those previous efforts. I hit the top of Mingus Mountain Climb just as the sun was beginning to set. The beautiful golden hour sunlight streamed across the hilltops and into the trees, and it was absolutely lovely. But after the trail ended, I wasn't to the aid station yet. I still had a long hike on forest roads to finally reach the aid station. Crew parking was quite a walk from the aid station. So first I checked in with the volunteers and then I walked down to the parking area. Leah had brought pizza, so I ate and then she worked on a niggling pain in my right leg. Then I had a 15 minute nap. At 9.30 PM, I started to hike out of the aid station. At the same moment, I ran into Scott Ramey and Pam Reed so the three of us left together. Gabe Peterson joined our group, and we began the descent. This is not a trail, was said multiple times by members of our group as we descended. The trail was super steep and incredibly rocky, with footing not always sure. Frankly, it sucked. Eventually, the course merged onto what appeared to be a road, or what used to be a road. Our group of four split up as Scott announced that he wanted to leg it into Jerome. I joined him. The elevation profile showed a slight decline for about four miles, but in reality, the road seemed to gently climb. Where were we going? This road was so confusing because it seemed to be going up, not down, and we could see the towns of Jerome, Clarkdale, and Cottonwood come into view and then leave and then come back again. It was like we were going around in circles, circles that didn't seem to match the elevation profile. The surface of the road was often painfully rocky, It was flooded in a few places, which seemed weird, but it was always rocky. I started to imagine taking off my shoes at the next aid station to find my feet like ground beef. Our feet hurt so bad, and we weren't having any fun. Eventually, the road began a descent, which was hope-giving, and after the longest, rockiest segment, we started to see multiple signs admonishing us to be quiet with shh. Unfortunately, the point where we left the rocky road and entered the streets of Jerome were actually far below Jerome, which meant we immediately had to climb up another steep hill. Scott and I turned off our headlamps to be respectful to the residents of the town, and we didn't speak to each other. We even seemed to control our breathing to be extra quiet. After a while, a human form moved ahead of us in the darkness. In the hushest of tones, the volunteer asked us to cross the street and walk up the hill on the sidewalk. After more quiet climbing, we reached another volunteer in the dark, who in the same way instructed us to cross the street to the other side to continue on the sidewalk. Finally, we reached the center of the small town, and a third volunteer showed us where to go to find the aid station. It was all so weird. I had visited Jerome previous to the race and thought it was a cool place, and I was excited to return. It is so interesting and so beautiful, but the race rules were to be quiet and to take no photos or videos. I don't know why the town didn't want us there, but I couldn't wait to leave. Leah paced me out of Jerome. It was fun to have her join me for part of the course. As we approached the edge of town, the rest of my crew, my parents, slowed to wave us good luck. Dad forgot the rules, rolled down his window, and cheerfully shouted, Have a good time! Shh! I admonished. And then Leah and I laughed. Quietly, of course. As soon as the course left the edge of town, we crossed the gate, and then the trail steepened. It was an old service road, I guess, but mostly it was rocks and broken glass. So much broken glass. The course meandered across various dirt and rock fields and ditches and eventually dumped us onto a road, and we ran through the neighborhoods of Clarkdale. After a short road run, the course went back on trail, and eventually we crossed the Verde River. It was a short crossing, getting our feet wet as promised. The trail took us into the state park and we had some really nice single track winding to the aid station. Dead Horse Ranch is a nice state park and a great aid station. Real bathrooms, parking close to the aid station, and it is just beautiful. When I arrived, I asked about food and I was told they had just stopped making tacos to do oatmeal instead. But maybe they would still make me a taco. Yes, please, a taco, thank you. Ain't nobody wants oatmeal. I was deeply grateful for this taco and I inhaled it. I had to deal with a blister and I seemed to be at the aid station for a long time. So by the time I left, I felt like I was well behind the familiar faces I'd been running with. The sun was up and the temperatures were rising. My breathing struggled with lung mucus. So as I got out of the park, I conducted a beautiful cacophony of hacking and coughing and spitting as I pushed myself to run. Soon after leaving the state park, We joined the Lime Kiln Trail, and the landscape was immediately different than what I'd seen the previous 135 miles. The ground was white and red, like a baby of the moon and Mars. The vegetation was completely different than what we'd been seeing on the other side of Mingus Mountain. I marveled at the variety of scenery this course handed us. I pushed to run to try to catch up to the other runners. Because it was warming up, I was worried not to overdo it, so I kept an eye on my heart rate and I kept it low as I ran a mild and comfortable pace. Eventually, I saw runners up ahead and I caught up. It was Kerry Ward and his pacer, Miles J. I had met Kerry at the start line and we crossed paths on the trail a few times, but we hadn't actually run together yet. I slid in with these guys and we chattered for a while as we ran and it was delightful. The trail was winding desert single track. There were slight elevation gains and losses, a nice rolling trail that joined and left double tracks and roads, but all of it was mostly exposed. Soon we would see the red rock walls of Sedona in the distance. I was thrilled that we'd be able to see it in the daylight. The three of us cut up to Bill Dittman, and then us, Mary Four, ran together along the dirt trails to the Deer Pass trailhead. From Deer Pass Trailhead to Sedona is about 16 miles, and on this day it was hot. I started to think about how I needed to carry extra water, but I got a reprieve because the aid station volunteers told us that there was a water and ice drop six miles into the section, at the edge of town near the high school. Perfect. I can easily get there and then refill. The trails out of Deer Pass were rolling double track and dirt road. Lots of climbing and descending, but none of it very big. The trail turned into single track, we crossed the highway, and then there was more climbing. Despite the heat and the climbing, I was having the time of my life. The views of Sedona were starting to peak, and I felt like I was in heaven. I was running and feeling great, and I kept thinking about how at 150 miles, I had never felt this good. The single track descended, and we found ourselves at the water and ice drop. Carrie and Miles were a little ahead, and I arrived at the drop just behind Bill Dittman. David Burns was also at the water drop plus two other runners I didn't know. I refilled my bottles and chomped on ice, and it was wonderful. The trail crossed the road, and a local offered me a popsicle. I was absolutely giddy. These trails were magic, wonderfully runnable grades that went out to picturesque turns that delighted us with views of the Sedonic rock formations. I was having a blast. I passed Jody and shared with her my glee. The single track descended to town, and we ran behind condos and apartments. Then the climbing started for the loop around the airport. The single track trail works its way up and then circles the airport, giving us constant views of rocks and cliffs. On the climb up to the airport loop, I caught up to Carrie and Miles, and eventually Bill Dipman was with us too. Us four went around the airport and then descended into Sedona for the last little stretch to the in-town aid station. We used the back door into Sedona. Clearly the town didn't want us bothering the tourists. Our route took us off the trails from the airport loop onto a road for a short bit, but then shifted us onto a small trail that went to a culvert and various weird trails in the trees alongside a dry drainage that felt more like a meth market than a running trail. Now, to be clear, I saw no drugs or users, but I nervously expected them as I rounded each bend. Where on earth is this church with the aid station? I was feeling great and I had run so much of the last weird trail system. I was anxious to see my crew... So I ran up the short sidewalk incline and finally arrived at St. James Vianney. After eating and resetting at the aid station, it was past time for me to get moving. I had arrived at this aid station on a bubbling, bouncing high, but I was leaving with anxiety. The runners I wanted to be with were ahead of me. How far, I didn't know. As I ran on the trail, I had breathing problems like I had had leaving Dead Horse Ranch. I was hacking up mucus like crazy, and I tried to get my breathing back into rhythm. Surprisingly, I caught up to Kerry Ward and his pacer miles after just a mile or two, and I was happy to be in their company again. This part of the course was really pretty as we were just up against the rock cliffs of Sedona. To make it more visually arresting, the sun was going down too. Even though the sun was going down, the temperatures remained high as the red rocks radiated heat out to us. It got dark, and soon we found ourselves getting tired as we wound around the warm rocks. Carrie and I laid down for a 10-minute snooze, but I don't think we actually slept. The section of the course was twisty with lots of little ups and downs. We ended up on rocks in a sketchy section that looked like we were on a cliff. The steps in the trail were very tall for my short legs, but then the course worked its way downhill away from the red rock cliffs. The section of the course was relatively easy moving, but in the dark, Carrie and I weren't feeling it. Our spirits waned as we grew more and more tired. We stopped a couple times to eat, but we were really excited to get to the aid station to rest. Leaving Huntley Tank Aid Station, we were excited to get to the next aid station, Black Tank, because our crews were waiting there. Unfortunately, Miles' pacing duty also ended at Black Tank, which was a bummer. While he was Carrie's pacer, I enjoyed his company very much. The course in this section was along dirt and rock desert roads, sometimes surprisingly rough roads. We paused a couple times for Carrie to have a five-minute nap. Even though I was tired, I wasn't wanting to sleep there. I had decided to wait to sleep at the next aid station. While Carrie had a trail nap, Miles and I turned off our headlamps and marveled at the stars. Out here in the desert, the stars really came out. It felt like it took forever, but we finally arrived at the black tank aid station. I laid down in the crew vehicle for two hours. The sky was bright when I woke up, which was simultaneously encouraging but also disorienting. It took a few moments for me to understand where I was, what I was doing, and where I was going. A medic looked at my feet. They were generally okay, though I had a small blister on a small toe, so he applied something to it. I wasn't quite awake during that interaction. I heard that Kerry was awake and getting ready to go, so I got moving so I could be sure to leave with him. The sun being up meant that we could now see what was around Black Tank. Wow, it was beautiful! There was green vegetation and flowers, and the nearby hills had some greenery too. The problem with night running is you miss these views. I was so happy to be continuing the daylight so that we could appreciate what was around us. Pam Reed left Black Tank at the same time, and the three of us chatted as we moved away from the aid station. The conversations among runners were often the same. And if we were just leaving an aid station, we were probably complaining about the food. Bean roll-ups and ramen just don't pack the caloric wallop we need when running more than 200 miles. The course was on a road away from Black Tank and moved towards the edge of a plateau. We could see plainly where we were heading. The road would soon switch back beneath power lines and climb up onto the plateau. It looked like a big climb. Carrie and I powered up the climb, talking some, but not too much. It was about 8 a.m. and the temperature was already rising. When we got to the top of the climb, we stopped for a moment to savor the views and eat something. Then we started running along the road. From here to the next aid station was all gravel road. It followed a ridge line and at one point had incredible views on both sides. To the right, we were looking at the backside of the rocks and formations of Sedona, and to the left, the Sycamore Canyon Wilderness. The views were arresting. Even though the top of the plateau was forested, the road we traveled was still largely exposed. The road climbed and fell, but the individual ascents and descents weren't too bad. A bunch of runners seemed to be in this area together. Carrie Ward and me, Scott Ramey, David Reedman, Thor Johansson, and Shelby Farrell with her pacer husband. We were still a couple miles from the Turkey Butte aid station when we saw Thor again, and he told us he had been out of water for a little while, and so Carrie shared some of his. This section was hot and exposed, with a lot of constant and long rolling up and down, and we all would have done well to have carried more water. A little less than a mile from the aid station, we found a little cattle pond close to the road. Carrie, David Reedman, and I stopped and refreshed a little with it. We didn't drink or filter from it, but I splashed it on my neck and the back of my knees and dipped my hat into it. Carrie soaked his shirt in the water, and we walked away feeling a little cooled down. The closer we got to the Turkey Butte aid station, the more I felt a hot spot underneath my right forefoot. I stopped at the medical tent, drained the forming blister, and the medic taped me up. The volunteers at Turkey Butte were the best, so friendly and fun. I ate loads of watermelon and berries and brownies. They refilled all my chest bottles, even adding ice to them. I ate the bean roll-ups and lastly had my ice bandana filled with ice. Carry left a couple of minutes before me from Turkey Butte, and I told him I would catch up. I had a hard time finding my rhythm once back on the road. My right foot was now taped up to fight the blister on the bottom, but every step hurt. I soon learned that I felt better to run than walk, so I ran a little bit and caught up with Kerry. The forest road we followed had lots of gentle ups and downs and was relatively easy going. I got ahead of Kerry and thought I heard his feet on the ground behind me It was actually the sound of the shifting and melting ice in my ice bandana. After a while of running lightly along the road, I caught up to David Burns, and when I turned to talk to Kerry, I realized I had inadvertently dropped him. David and I chatted away together, power hiking and running, when we felt like it. Even when we were walking, we still made a good 16 minute per mile pace. Eventually, the heat started to get to me, and I could feel nausea heading my way. In hindsight, I wished I'd carry more water capacity for these sections. I was getting dehydrated as we approached Cinder Pit. At Cinder Pit, the amazing medical staff checked my foot and re-taped the blisters. I relaxed and ate with my crew, drank a bunch of water, and then I slept for about 30 minutes. Our plan was to have me and Carrie leave Cinder Pit by 5 p.m. The course continued along the forest road, straight and nearly flat for a few miles. We caught up to Pam Reed and talked with her and her pacer Ernie for a while. Near Rogers Lake, the course turned off the road on a single track that climbed up and over a number of hills, but the climbs and descents were pretty gentle and runnable. We hit the top of Woody Mountain as the sun was setting, and it was so pretty. These single track trails were fun to run, but as it got dark, I had no sense of what was around us. I shone my headlamp around, but all I saw was darkness. Temperatures were cooler than the previous nights, and I wondered how cold it would actually get up here at the higher elevations of the course. As we neared Fort Tuthill, my blistered foot was hurting more and more. But worse, I was feeling increasingly nauseous. Carrie and I talked about our options, which I knew had to include some sleep. A realization appeared. Both of our crews had hotels in Flagstaff. That meant we could stop for the night, leave the course from the aid station, and get cleaned up, fed, and rested before the final 35-mile push to the finish. The Cocodona race rules permit racers to leave their trackers at an aid station and leave the course, something that I didn't expect to avail myself of, but this felt smart. At a Hampton Inn, I sat in a tub soaking my sore feet, drinking quart after quart of delicious ice water to rehydrate, and enjoying a burger with fries. Leah cleaned up my feet, I elevated them on a stack of pillows, and slept for almost three hours. Even the blisters looked a lot better after the bath and the sleep. I felt so much better after rehydrating and the nausea was gone. By 2.45 a.m., we were back at Fort Tuthill and the medical team was taping me up for the last 35-mile push. I also had a bite to eat, a store-bought sandwich my crew gave me, and also a small bowl of pasta and meatballs from the aid station. Nice to see something other than PB&J and bean roll-ups. Carrie arrived and just after 3.30 a.m., we were back out on the course. Out of Fort Tuthill, we crossed a mix of gravel and dirt urban trails that passed near neighborhoods. As the sun rose and illuminated our world, we passed Van Patterson, joined the Arizona Trail, and came to the end of Walnut Canyon. At this point, we also caught up to Jody Seminel and her pacer. The trails in the Walnut Canyon National Monument were beautiful. The trail had a couple of decent climbs, but it was mostly very runnable. We caught Thor Johansson and David Burns as we approached the Walnut Canyon aid station. It was a nice downhill into the aid station, and we used it to our advantage. The energy at the aid station was electric. Crews were cheering, and runners were quickly making preparations for the next two sections. It felt like a race. The run to Mount Eldon was quite nice across mostly flattish trails that were completely runnable. The single track wound through the sparse trees and flowy bends clearly cut for cyclists. We crossed through culverts beneath the freeway and then ran along the shoulder of the historic Route 66 before rejoining the AZT. The whole approach to Mount Eldon was nice trails, with the mountain getting closer and the looming knowledge that soon we'd face a tough climb onto the highest point of the course. We turned right onto the Mount Eldon Trail and a sign announced that it was 2.6 miles to the top. We wouldn't be going exactly to the top, but that was fine. We still had 9 miles after the aid station anyway. Poles out, we started the big climb. The trail up Mount Eldon features large rocks that often serve as giant steps. My short legs felt a little disadvantaged trying to keep up with Carrie. We pushed a strong pace and passed Jordan Worf's Brock in her pacer. We passed hikers too, many of whom cheered us on because they knew what we were doing. We approached the saddle near the summit where the course took a right fork to head towards the aid station and my legs were fatigued. I worried I had pressed too hard on this climb. Would I have enough juice that left in me to get down? I didn't let myself worry. There was only one path forward, and I would take it with everything that I had. Carrie wanted us to do a fast turn through the aid station, but I asked that we stop for a minute. I wanted fresh water in my bottles. This aid station was also offering ribs to eat. I don't eat ribs, but I also don't dislike them, so I asked to have one before we left, and it was great. Jordan and her pacer approached the aid station, which meant we had to get out. On somewhat tired legs at 9,000 feet above sea level, we hit the trails. We started on a tiny climb on single track, and then the course emptied us onto a gravel road that would descend the mountain. I took it gingerly, and Carrie was patient. Then David Burns flew by us. David was clearly having the time of his life, and I wish I'd grab a photo. "'I like how he's not fighting the hill,' Carrie said. "'I offered that Carrie should follow after David.' But my partner of the last few days said he'd stick with me. What a gift. So I did my best to return the favor and channel my inner downhill running David Burns. Let the hill take me down. Don't break with my legs. Be effortless. Don't destroy my quads. With these goals in mind, the pace increased while the effort remained low. We caught up to and passed another runner, Nate Smith, and then the course turned off the dirt road back onto single track. We rolled up and down through the forest on this nice single track heading towards Buffalo Park. We kept an eye over our shoulders to make sure no runners were going to overtake us. We were putting a buffer between us and Nate and whoever might be behind him. In Buffalo Park, we saw a runner beginning a workout in the opposite direction coming right at us. His face was familiar. In fact, I had seen him hanging out at Fort Tuthill the night before. It was Jim Walmsey. Hi, Jim, I said as I passed, he having no idea who I am. The course descended out of the park onto a wide gravel trail and our pace quickened. Nobody was behind us still, and we were getting close to one mile to go to the finish. Upon leaving Buffalo Park, the course put us onto sidewalks. Indeed, the remainder of the course would be on roads. There was a gentle uphill to a light where we would turn left and have our final all downhill last mile. I jogged up this hill and Carrie talked me down. Let's walk uphill. There's nobody coming after us. Then, after four and a half days of running, there was only one mile to go. My legs felt amazing. My feet felt good. It is incredible how a body that has run 254 miles can feel fresh and capable of continuing. We ran down the hill with an easy quickness. We stopped at a red light with 0.7 miles to go. I was pacing back and forth on the sidewalk like a caged lion, Carrie said. It was true. I was ready to go. The light turned for us to cross and I sprinted ahead. My friend Floris met us at that stoplight to make, my friend Floris met us at the stoplight to take some photos and video of the finish, and his presence must have given me extra cause to show off. We were flying at a crazy pace and I just couldn't sustain it. We weren't racing to the finish, so this speed was unnecessary, but it felt good and was fun. We dialed it back a little and found ourselves at a left turn two blocks from the finish. We had discussed how we would finish. Carrie had been in the last starting wave, 30 minutes behind me. So even if I crossed the line before him, he was already 30 minutes ahead of me in the race. That, and out of respect for this man I followed for years and now consider a good friend, I asked that he go across the finish line first. At the corner, we stopped and embraced. We hugged and thanked each other for the shared experiences of the last few days. And I think we both shed a tear of joy and love and mutual respect. And then Kerry ran off to the finish. I smiled and stood on the corner for a moment. No runners were immediately behind me, so I wasn't in a hurry. Wow, what had we done? After all the struggle, all the climbing and struggles with water and food, after journeying across desert and mountain, here I was about to bring it to an end. I walked the last block with a smile. I was so pleased with this achievement. I ran a little as I approached the alley entrance to Heritage Square, and then I got to see the finish line. Look at that crowd! There's my partner and crew chief, Leah, my mom and dad, and so many cameras were trained on me as I crossed the line. The announcer called my name as I came across, and the crowd's cheering was a gift of love and wonder. I hugged and kissed Leah, and she presented me with my buckle. Wow, we had all come so far, and now it was over. Some of my takeaways from this race. This was a tough course, and it took out a lot of strong runners, some of them early in the race, Finishing this so strong was a huge boost of confidence for me. Success early in the race meant carrying enough water, and that was indeed what was needed the whole time. I felt worse than sections 18 and 19 when I wasn't quite drinking enough. The race itself had problems with not enough water drops and two limited aid station food options, but these are just inaugural issues that I expect the race to address next time. Cocodona 250 was a difficult journey from the Sonoran Desert to Flagstaff, incorporating many physically challenging climbs and mentally challenging traverses. Athletes who take on and survive this race should feel good about themselves no matter where they finish in the standings. Thank you, Jamil Khoury and Steven Adderholt and the entire Aero Viper running team for dreaming up and realizing this incredible adventure. It was an honor to participate in the inaugural run of this event, and I'm happy beyond words that I was able to be a part of this moment in ultra running history.
0: Boom, there you have it. That's what it's like running a 250, maybe 257 mile race. Uh, Big shout out to Wes for, one, knocking off um, such a wild and crazy goal running that far and also sharing his story with us here. Um, Wes has a cool YouTube channel that I'll link to as well if you want um, even more of a recap and to dig into some of the other stuff he's done too. Um, There's some fun stuff over there. Uh, Man, you know, I think ultras in general, you know, people understand that have run them. You have these highs and lows and you can be kind of amazed what your body can do. I remember when I ran black Canyon, I was crushed by the heat out there. Um, And as soon as the sun started going down and, you know, we had five K to go, I was suddenly running, you know, eight minute miles and I was barely moving in the heat or, for portions of the day. So, you know, you have these highs and lows and these, you, you think you're toast and you can come out of it. You know, I think that's something that comes through in Wes's story. Just, you know, like at the end of 250, whatever miles, you know, he's hammering the last few miles, but even throughout the day, like taking little naps and getting up and going and then running when you're feeling good and walking when it's hot and, there's so much more strategy that goes into being successful when you're having to do it for four days over that long of a distance. Um, and, and just the mental side of it as well. Um, but gosh, what, what an amazing way to explore Arizona. Um, you know, like I said, this race, something I followed along big time with and, was so well put on but I also love that Wes shared the truth in in some of the, the things as well you know I actually had the same experience as him at Black Canyon where I got to the last aid station and it was getting dark and kind of chilly and I couldn't eat anything I could only eat broth and they didn't have any broth ready and they had ramen but the ramen was hard so I <laughs> drank the ramen um, you know, water. And I literally ate the ramen like, like a cracker. Um, so kind of had the same experience as him at one of the aid stations. But, you know, the one thing I know, and Wes even mentioned this, you know, with some of the things that maybe they didn't have dialed in for airvipa at the beginning. Um, it's an organization that, you know, is so classy that they're going to take the feedback and improve. And they actually did that Mid race, I believe, you know, when I was following along, they added in some water early, just like water only stops early because, you know, people were saying it was just too far for um, certain areas, or there wasn't water to filter, and blah blah blah. So, you know, it's it's cool to get the perspective on a first year race from the athletes because. First year race, you're you're not going to have all the logistics dialed in right. Um, you know, we put on our first hundred miler in St. Louis, and um, you know we appreciate the feedback, and I'm sure Air Vipa appreciates the feedback from the athletes, and it's good that the owner of the company was running the race too. Uh, Jamil, I'm sure will uh, make make adjustments as well, but besides that, I think everyone that I've read reports from or feedback that I've followed online. Absolutely love this race and Air Vipa went on another level with the footage for Cocodona. I mean, they just raised the bar to to a place um, in the United States for ultra events that, you know, hopefully other event companies can do on a smaller scale and and present some live footage because it is Absolutely amazing to see athletes out there just grinding away and um, getting live commentary and feedback from people at aid stations. It was just it was a blast <clears throat> to watch, and you know I'm super pumped for Wes, uh, teammate, to knock this out, and I'm also very grateful for him to share the report. So um, I don't know about you guys, but I am <laughs> I am intrigued by. By these 200 mile races now, um, and I might blame Wes for for putting me over the edge. Uh, but anyway, big thanks to Wes for his report. Congrats on um, an awesome race! Like I said, I will link to all of his um, social media and definitely his YouTube. Go check it out. Um, with that being said, episode 26 is in the books. Thank you to our Patreons, Brian Scheit, Michael Truman, Tenjuck Miles, and my favorite podcast, Scotty Coomer. Thank you guys for helping. Um, you know, I know a lot of people don't realize, but there is some money that goes into doing this stuff. And, you know, on a bigger scale, I want to do more of them. Um, we've got another good one coming next week. Uh, I won't tease too much on it, but uh, if you want to send in your reports, uh, shoot them over to the endurance at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook, at the endurance house podcast, or on Instagram at the endurance house podcast. I just joined Reddit as well. I don't know anything about Reddit, but um, I'm finding some race reports on there. So hit us up. I want to hear stories, I want to hear them from all angles too. It doesn't just have to be ultras. You know, I want to hear people's 5Ks, I want to hear. Um, Swim runs, triathlons, cycling, you know, uh, this is the Endurance House and I want to hear all endurance athletes and share them out for you guys. So um, without further ado, oh yeah, yeah you can hit us up on Patreon as well if you want to support at the Endurance House podcast. Um, and with that, we will kick it off for this episode. Hope you guys are enjoying these summer temps and and a little bit of return to normalcy that's going around. Um, Stay safe out there and we will see you soon.